the world's wind industry is gathering in Melbourne this August. Join them at the APAC Summit to discuss collaboration, market building and solving supply chain challenges in the expanding APAC market. Buy tickets at apacsummit2023.com.au. Hello listeners, Stuart Bowen here, the Chief Operating Officer of the Global Wind Energy Council and this is another podcast in the series of the APAC Offshore Wind and Green Hydrogen Summit which is taking place in Melbourne, Australia from the 29th to the 31st of August 2023 and as part of that series we are reaching out to companies that are speaking and participating at the conference and a great friend of GWIX, Iberdrola, is going to be at the conference and I'm delighted to have today the CEO and Chairman of Iberdrola Australia, Ross Rolf. Welcome, Ross. Thank you so much, Stuart. Uh, great to have the opportunity to, to chat. So for our listeners, Iberdrola, anyone in the wind industry or anyone in industry probably knows the name Iberdrola and they've heard the name Iberdrola. Uh, can I get you to give our listeners a bit of background into what is Iberdrola's footprint in, and interest in the APAC area, particularly in relation to offshore wind and green hydrogen? Sure. Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Stuart, and thanks for the opportunity. Um, Iberdrola's interest, I guess, uh, in, a, in the APAC region really divides into two key areas of focus. The first uh, is Australia itself, um, and I'll come back and talk a little about that. And the second is really North Asia. Um, and within North Asia, uh, its uh, focus of interest is Japan and Korea. Iberdrola's had uh, a presence in the Japanese market since uh, about 2014, um, and uh, more recently has been uh, very active in uh, exploring offshore opportunities, participating in auction processes run by the uh, by the Japanese government and in Korea has uh, formed a collaboration agreement uh, with uh, GS Energy um, uh, in terms of looking for opportunities for uh, investment in uh, onshore, offshore uh, renewables and uh, co-investing in, uh, in those projects. In Australia, um, more, recent, uh, more recently, uh, Iberdrola acquired the company that I was previously the chief executive of called Infogen Energy, which was listed on the uh, Australian Stock Exchange. Um, and uh, uh, that occurred uh, in the middle of uh, the, or early actually, in the COVID uh, pandemic uh, process. Uh, so that transaction completed in the second half of 2020. And uh, since that period of time, we've been taken uh, private as a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Iberdrola. We currently, we've since that time, pretty much doubled our installed capacity to about uh, 1,400 megawatts of dominantly uh, onshore wind with some utility scale solar, supported by um, uh, some battery storage uh, capacity as well as uh, a small fleet of fast start uh, gas peakers. That enables us to offer a, a firmed uh, green 
our product to our commercial and industrial customers in Australia. We were really the sort of pioneers of that uh, business model, uh, managing intermittency risk for uh, a CNI segment that had a range of ESG objectives that they were trying to achieve. Um, so in that uh, period, we've, uh, as I mentioned, doubled our installed capacity, very substantially grown our our, uh, our customer base. Um, we've introduced a networks business in Australia. As you know, uh, Iberdrola has a very substantial networks business globally and uh, a very big part of the energy transition here is to reinvent the electricity grid around uh, uh, renewable fuels rather than uh, 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 fossil fuels. And uh, finally, we have set up a green hydrogen business uh, in Australia. And at present, we have uh, invested uh, in one project, which is a green methanol project in uh, northern Tasmania, uh, with an eye to the uh, the need for the uh, seaborne freight uh, sector to heavily decarbonise over the course of the next uh, the balance of this decade. Wow. That's a very impressive track record, and it seems that you have fingers in a lot of pies in the APAC region. Uh, I, of course, I was aware in some of those, but I, I must admit, from the um, green hydrogen perspective, I didn't realise that you guys were involved in that um, project down in northern Tasmania. That's pretty interesting. Uh, your your personal background. You said that you you were you came across uh, in the second half of twenty twenty. What were you doing? It was it Infigy Energy. Infogen Energy. Infogen Energy. It, uh, it was a uh, pure play renewables uh, company listed on the ASX from about 2005 and about 2015. Um, we, uh, I guess, anticipated the shift in the renewables market, uh, given what was happening in Australia at the time, and we complemented our renewables uh, wind fleet with battery storage and gas peakers, which enabled us to uh, manage and price uh, intermittency risk for that particular customer segment that I that I mentioned. Um, and since then, we've uh, we've grown uh, substantially. Prior to that, uh, I was the CEO of Alinta Energy in Australia. I was the chair of CS Energy in Queensland and the CEO of uh, uh, Stanwell Corporation uh, in Queensland, which uh, was actually a pioneer of renewables in the Australian market. Um, and I've also been uh, uh, the head of the Premier's Department in Queensland, the head of the Department of State Development and a number of other uh, senior positions in government. It sounds like you have quite the pedigree, particularly in the renewable energy space. Uh, in your wildest dreams, would you have expected to see offshore wind develop like it has in Australia? I mean, Australia, people, people typically, when they think about Australia, they think about maybe onshore wind and solar as, and, and some battery storage. And people's like, why do you need offshore wind when they've got so much land available? What's your perspective of that, particularly as a Queenslander, where I guess where there's lots of, there is lots of land available up there? Uh, had you, what, what's some of your thoughts around the development of offshore wind? 
Look, uh, I mean, I think like uh, many people in the Australian market, uh, it was a bit surprising how quickly um, that occurred, but I do think it is a really important part of the energy transition going forward. I mean, there are um, a range of factors that uh, militate against uh, onshore wind in uh, certain parts of the country, not the least of which are sort of social license, sometimes environmental impact issues and so on. The cost of offshore wind uh, has been sort of progressively going down the cost curve and the scale of projects and the uh, better capacity factors of offshore wind do make them, I believe, uh, are more competitive than one might have thought sort of even five years ago. Um, and I think, uh, you know, particularly the reduced uh, sort of social impact issues is an important uh, feature of offshore wind. Transmission in particular onshore uh, does enliven uh, uh, quite a lot of uh, uh, community concern. So yeah. the extent to which you can uh, 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 capture the opportunities offshore as well as uh, uh, onshore, I think that's a good thing when you're trying to really revolutionise the whole energy system across the country. Yeah. So when we look to the broader APAC region, and Iberdrola has been a market leader in developing or being one of the, those companies that are, I guess, have had some ambition or have had some demonstrated ambition to be a market leader in opening up new markets. Uh, you know, you're, you're here... Uh, in Australia, as the market as the market is emerging, what are some of the specific criteria that Iberdrola looks for to, in order to think, yeah, this is a great market. This is something that's worth considering for us. Um, look, I think, I think there's a bunch of things in the in the context of Australia. I, I think the key things here are first a country with you know low sovereign risk, really compared to. Um, many other parts of uh, uh, of the world, and including in the Asia Pacific region. Secondly, more recently, a convergence of uh, policy across the Australian Federation of Governments about the uh, energy transition, the need to collectively uh, work together and uh, accelerate that. Uh, that transition, um, which hasn't really been the case uh, for much of the last decade in Australia. Um, third, of course, you know, the uh, uh, world-class uh, uh, renewable resource that Australia has to offer, both in terms of uh, onshore wind, offshore wind uh, and solar. Um, uh, so I think all of those things, together with, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the huge job to be done in reinventing the national electricity grid to support the transition. So, you know, combination of very good uh, uh, raw materials uh, to work with, an energy market that is well-established, low sovereign risk, um, uh, and uh, uh, I think also the potential for export. Uh, you know, green hydrogen does uh, provide the opportunity to 
export uh, green hydrogen derivatives into you know the Asian uh, market in particular where we've long been an energy superpower so uh, and also an economy that will need to reinvent itself in a post fossil fuel uh, world so I think all the fundamental elements there are good um, in the case of uh, uh, Japan and North Korea um, they're both mature economies uh, that uh, have sort of well-established uh, systems to work with. In their case, uh, 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 less favourable natural resources to work with, hence uh, the linkage with Australia seems, um, you know, synergistic. Yeah, and you've, I mean, a, a number of people that I've spoken to have said that they it would be very useful to have some federal targets and some, uh, you know, I guess maybe a greater show of commitment from the federal government about specifically how much wind that they want to bring or how much renewable energy they want as part of their mix. And I know that they've got the wind zones and the decarbonisation targets, etc. So there's, there's, there are some signals, but you kind of have to extrapolate what that means, I guess, from a business case. How do you guys deal with that? Uh, uncertainty or that lack of clarity from federal government? Look, we're, we're pretty comfortable with it, to be honest, okay. Stuart. Um, they do have uh, a clear target, which actually is a very ambitious one, to convert a system which currently is reliant about uh, for about 70% uh, of uh, the market on fossil fuels to transform by 2030 into one which is... Uh, reliant on 82% of of uh, renewable generation. So, you know, they've sort of set the broad goal. They then have a bunch of programs to support uh, the delivery of those goals where they're most challenging. Like, for example, you know, they are introducing uh, a sort of capacity payment mechanism yep. to support uh, in. Uh, investment in short-term storage. They do have systems to support uh, or programs to support investment in uh, large-scale transmission infrastructure where often patronage takes time to uh, grow. Um, each of the states have sort of quite complementary programs to sort of uh, uh, provide a buttress in the economics of uh, investment in uh, renewable generation as well as storage. So, look, we're pretty comfortable with the overall sort of policy settings that exist in Australia. Fantastic. And I guess so are many others. You know, there's certainly been a bit of a gold rush for the feasibility licences of the Gippsland area. It seems like that there was, I think there was 37 applicants or something for those licences. So yeah. it seems that the industry is uh, pretty bullish about the Australian market. If we look at the supply chain challenges, one of the things that we wanted to touch upon at the, at the conference is that we see that capacity in the region is going to be challenged in those years when Australia uh, is looking to, I guess, do their, come online with some of these offshore wind and uh, hydrogen projects. How do you guys see the capacity challenges and do you, uh, do you also share the uh, view that these next 12 to 24 months are very critical 
for the supply chain to get those signals, those investment signals, so we've got the we build the skill set that we need to meet those goals. Look, absolutely. I think the supply chain and the um, labour-related uh, challenges are huge. You know, in Australia at present, um, we have a very tight labour market, um, uh, and there's a requirement for a massive increase. Uh, in the number, I think about an eightfold increase uh, in the number of workers in the energy sector uh, to over the course of the balance of this decade. Uh, the supply chain issues are putting inflationary pressures on the cost of, uh, of new projects. Um, encouragingly, in recent weeks, we are starting to hear that uh, as the world sort of gets back into its rhythm post-COVID that some of those pressures are declining a little. Having said that, we are just a small part of a global energy transition. So I think that is going to be a big challenge going forward. One of the things which we are keen to try to do and we're working uh, with the, uh, the equipment manufacturers uh, to, to see how much of the supply chain can be localised. Obviously, there are parts of that that simply don't make sense to localise, but there are you know, opportunities for some greater level of localisation than we've seen in the past, particularly as the sort of certainty of future demand sort of becomes more legible, I guess, uh, for manufacturers to see. So. There are some uh, encouraging signs. We, of course, as a you know global uh, business, uh, we do have good relations with uh, uh, the uh, equipment manufacturers, and we buy at global scale. But of course, there are others uh, who are equally in a position to do so. So I agree. Supply chain issues are a uh, a significant uh, challenge going forward, but um, it does tend to affect people relatively equally. Yeah, sure. And if we think about the conference, is there any particular topics, you know, we're, we're talking about regional collaboration, we're talking about supply chain, but is there any objectives that you, or any discussions that you specifically would like to have at the conference or what do you think is the most important topics that we tackle uh, at this conference? Look, there are a whole, there's so many things that I think are going to be very interesting about uh, this con conference, um, in particular, from my own part, uh, learning about the experience of others with great offshore capability. While, you know, I'm lucky that uh, I do have access to the uh, the know-how of Iberdrola globally in this area, it's always interesting to hear about uh, others with uh, uh, significant expertise talk on their their topics. Um, I guess the two areas that uh, <clears throat> I'm particularly focused on at the moment is one that we just talked about, namely, how do we uh, prepare ourselves locally here best we can um, across uh, the industry in conjunction with government and local communities to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, ensure that we have the sort of skilled and trained workforce uh, uh, ready to uh, undertake the sort of 
construction process, both uh, onshore uh, and offshore, um, and then operate uh, uh, those projects once uh, completed. Uh, the other uh, key area is, uh, you know, maximising the benefits from localising supply chains uh, as much as possible without uh, introducing uncompetitive pressures uh, into projects. But I think it is an important opportunity for the country to take advantage of the energy transition to, you know, reinvigorate uh, some of its uh, lost manufacturing capability, for example. And finally, perhaps um, most importantly of all, is uh, how we bring communities along the journey with us. There's no doubt that the energy transition has significant impacts on regional communities, uh, not always in a good way. Um, impacts on uh, accommodation during construction phases, on roads, uh, regional road systems during construction phases, uh, and so on. How do we make sure that we minimise the adverse effects of those things and um, also capture the opportunities uh, that arise from them? Because, uh, you know, we really got to bring the community along this journey uh, if uh, they uh, don't see that the transition's delivering on their own uh, objectives and ambitions, then it's going to be a, uh, a, a tough thing to pull off. And I think everyone understands that, but it does uh, really create an opportunity for industry, governments, unions, local communities, research institutions to all uh, sort of pull together on delivering a, uh, a great outcome here. Um, but equally, uh, there's great risk if we fail to do that. Look, these are fascinating topics and I could talk to you for hours on this. Uh, I look forward very much to uh, chatting with you in Melbourne at the end of uh, August this year. Thank you very much, Ross, for joining us and uh, Thank you for Iberdrola also for being a, a major sponsor of the conference. We're very much appreciative and uh, we very much appreciate the fact that you know, companies like Iberdrola, these leading companies, want to do everything they can to help develop uh, uh, industry and use your experience where we can act and bring the lessons learnt from all of your experience into some of these new markets to really set the scene for others that are you know, just starting this journey. But Ross, thanks very much for your time today. Thank you so much, Stuart. Great to meet you. Look forward to seeing you in Melbourne.